Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we spend time with Joe Razka, who is the Chief Investment Officer, Managing Partner, Co-Founder of York IE or York.ie, which is an early stage investment fund out of New Hampshire with a very interesting operating model on the side, which we think you will find interesting. Joe, thanks for joining us on this episode. We're eager to learn more about York. To kick it off, tell us a little more about your firm. Certainly. Thanks again for having me. It's great to be here and speaking with both of you today. So York IE is a vertically integrated strategic growth and advisory firm. We work across the startup ecosystem with early stage B2B software companies, both from an investment standpoint, as well as an advisory perspective. So we have unique offerings and modules that we can bring to early stage companies that we believe have tremendous upside impact. I remember when we first talked about it, it's a little bit different, right, than unique. How did you arrive at that model? Because that has capital, but also service. So it's almost like an accelerator, but it's not an accelerator though, right? So tell us more, like how did you come up with that model and how does it work? If I'm a company that is wants to do X, Y, Z, or if I'm a founder, how do I work with you? Certainly. So first and foremost, my two partners and myself, we were operators. So we helped scale a B2B software company called Dyne, D-Y-N, to 100 million of ARR. We all served in various senior roles there. And after we sold the company to Oracle, we knew we wanted to work with startups, both investing, but also advising. So we said, how can we bring an offering to market that's differentiated, that's going to help us stand out, but is also going to be very helpful to founders and entrepreneurs. So we said, listen, let's build a company as operators, continue to be operators so that we can relate really well to startup founders, but also build a vehicle that's unique and differentiated where we can deploy capital through. So we've essentially put together an evergreen fund, an evergreen syndicate, where we've invited in a number of investment partners. It's a pool of capital today with about 80 million of committed capital. And we've set forth in our focus area, again, is all pre-seed, seed, sort of series A, B2B software companies up and down the stack. And we typically write million-dollar lead checks across that stage of investment. And then we can layer on our advisory services practice. So in essence, if we were just a small fund or so, we'd have, I don't know, four or five full-time employees. Instead, we've built a company where we actually employ close to 75 people today. And we've been able to build this advisory practice on the side of this investments vehicle that serves both portfolio and not portfolio companies. So at the same time as we're deploying capital, we're also scaling this unique operating business that is designed specifically to help the startup ecosystem. So today we have four offerings. One is on marketing and communications. So think content, brand, messaging, positioning. The other is go-to-market and revenue operations. So everything from go-to-market strategy to comp plans to quota modeling. But we also go so far now as to help with systems, with defining your funnels, with CRM setup, et cetera. We also offer a product development module. So we have a team in India 
of 40 plus developers. And that module is really designed to fill some gaps and holes in your product roadmap. So anything from integration work, API work, UX, UI, website design, designed to be quick projects that we can jump on in short order, manage really well here from our team in the US and our CTO and also co-founder Mike Bayou. He helps manage that here. And it's been uniquely effective at helping the startup ecosystem and what up until this point has been a pretty tough labor environment to find good talent and to find good talent quickly. And on the investing side, I know you mentioned the stage at which you come in, but what sort of themes are you looking for? What's the initial check that you guys write? We'd love to hear a little bit more about that component. Certainly. We are we tend to lead rounds in this sort of pre-seed, seed stage phase. We don't have to lead, however. We're happy to participate. We focus on, as I mentioned, all B2B software companies up and down the stack. Infrastructure, cyber, cloud native, DevOps, dev tooling. But we love to go up the stack into all the applications, also vertical SaaS plays and some digital health. Typically, we've invested in valuation ranges from $4 million pre-money to $40 million pre-money. That's been our focus area. And again, we take a sort of pragmatic approach as well to funding these businesses. So we think about, we're not looking for growth at all costs types of companies. We want pragmatic founders who are thoughtful about raising capital, controlling their cap table, having optionality. And our focus area, I'm sure you folks know, this is, this is a people business, right? It's all about the founders and the management teams. This is, we also focus on obviously market opportunity, go-to-market repeatability, right? But sound business models. We love repeatable, predictable revenue streams with strong, you know, as I mentioned, founders and entrepreneurs, but also strong technical teams attached to that. So we've got a series of diligence process that we walk through in a, in a pretty detailed process. But at the end of the day, the earliest stages of investing are mostly about the people. Right. I could tell, obviously, as you mentioned, the founder emphasis that you had. So what do you think the top qualities are that ultimately make the best founder that you specifically want to back? Absolutely. And I think as the saying goes, right, the number one reason startups fail are that the founders give up. We obviously look for that tenacity of mm -hmm. Being a gritty entrepreneur and operator. One of the biggest things though, as well, that we've now learned over a series of about 40 investments out of York IE is that you really need the thoughtful founder who understands the product and the market, but more so the customer. Understanding the customer, accepting that feedback loop from the customer, using that to define your business strategy and your product roadmap are certainly the key features other important components, obviously coachability, right? Again, given our model and that we're so operationally hands-on, we can pretty quickly tell if a founder is going to take advice, how they're going to take advice. You can tell that we're not just talking about advice from us as investors. We're talking about advice from their management team and the complementary pieces that they need to put around themselves, right? So- right. Do these folks understand their strengths and weaknesses and know how to put the puzzle pieces together in order to build the most effective team? But they don't have to use your services though, right? It's just out there as an opportunity for them should they choose to say, hey, I don't have as much expertise in kind of setting up the right go-to-market strategy. Can you guys help me? Is that right? And so talk a little bit about that. And then what geographically, I know you're based in New Hampshire, right? So yeah. 
where, what is your geographic target? Is that a constraint or is that not a constraint anymore in this world where everybody can be anywhere? On the geography side to start, no. Obviously, we started this company in late 2019. The world was a little bit different back then. And our focus was companies in the Northeast. So anything from sort of New York City to Portland, Maine, call it. But quickly, the world changed in March of 20. And so from a geographic standpoint, I'd say roughly half of our investments have been sort of East Coast, but we've made investments across the US. We have multiple investments in Canada now. We have two European-based companies in the portfolio as well. So pretty quickly, the world flattened out and we've spread geographically. In terms of your question regarding advisory services for investments, the investment stands on its own. So we, we are very transparent about that, upfront about that. We want entrepreneurs and founders to opt in to our full engagement model. We think it's the most effective, but it's certainly not a requirement of working with York IE. And from a deal flow perspective, we have a top of funnel approach and process. And some of those companies feed straight into advisory services. Some feed straight into our investment pipeline. We've made investments in companies, and then obviously they engage with services later. We've also worked with startups who use our advisory services and then become investments. Some of our sort of secret sauce and how we think about the world and why we built a company that invests is we have a typical sort of sales pipeline, marketing pipeline, funnel process. And we've got folks who work the top of funnel and feed companies through that process appropriately. That's often why, I mean, accelerators, that whole model makes a ton of sense, right? Because you've actively been working with those companies, you know them in and out, and then can have the opportunity to make the investment or not. And it's a great kind of due diligence period. Where does the name York IE come from? So Kyle York is my partner. Makes sense. That would make sense. Raska's Polish, pretty tough. It wouldn't really, it doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> I'm Shredder, the- so, you know, I feel you. Yep. So Kyle, Kyle and I had started angel investing way back in 2014. Kyle's a big personality, a big brand. He had stood up a personal website back in the day. Like I said, he's made over 60 angel investments, advised some companies that have become large publicly traded companies as well. He was our chief revenue officer at Dime. And it just made sense to continue on with his personal brand, which had grown to a certain extent, and again, a nice, easy name. And interestingly, so the .ie, which is .ireland, is a global top-level domain, a GTLD. And as cool as we think we are, we came from a managed DNS business, right? So the domain name system. And we actually, at Dine, managed the .ie GTLD. So he was able to buy that domain name years and years ago. And we continue to use that. There's some other anecdotes behind that as well that we like to tell. It's not Yorkie like the dog. (laughs) Even though it's spelled that way, right? Exactly. York.ie, Yorkie, yeah. Yeah, but no, it's uh, it was a great website, a great brand, and we just continued on with that. Tell us a little bit about your personal path. You talked a little bit about you working in this operating role, but how did you get into technology? What excited you? How did you personally decide, gee, I'd love to be an investor in companies? Certainly, and I'll even extend that a little bit to Adam and Kyle, my two partners. We actually all grew up together in New Hampshire. We played Little League Baseball together. My father was 
coach and my parents and Kyle's parents actually grew up together as well here in Manchester, New Hampshire. So the families go back a long way. We all went to different schools, different colleges, took jobs, moved away for a while, and then decided to come back all around the same time. And that's where we all landed at Dime. So my personal story I went to Providence College in Rhode Island. I went to work for Fidelity Investments after school. I was a finance major, so it was sort of on the corporate FP&A finance track. I worked for the Family Office Services Group there in Boston, moved down to New York, ended up staying with Fidelity for a bit, and then at an investment bank, small investment bank, right in the middle of the financial crisis. That bank blew up. That's a whole other story for a series of podcasts, perhaps. That's a lot uh, of them dead. Yeah. <laughs> You and Jenny can exchange notes. <laughs> yeah. She was managing uh, credit default swaps during the credit crisis on Wall Street. Oh, so beautiful. And I, my job there evolved from I supported the equity desk to turning in the Bloomberg terminals to tearing down the trading floor to selling the artwork off the walls, uh, dealing with the SEC, wow. dealing with the trustees. So quite the experience, but it, perhaps that prepared me well for the startup life. I did manage to transfer there over to Bloomberg. I worked for the trade book business again in a fine role. It's the broker-dealer business within the big media company. But I knew since that moment of the investment bank going under that, I wanted to move out of New York City, wanted to be back near family, was married at the time, and, and found myself faced with a decision between going to work at a large asset management company out of Boston or this interesting, unique startup where a few of my hometown friends were working and, and you know talking about things and looked like a lot of interesting upside. And for me, finance guy, pretty conservative from New Hampshire. I was going to go work for the large asset management company. And my wife convinced me, she said, hey, listen, every time you talk about this startup dime, the tone of your voice is different. Your excitement level is different. Now seems like the time to take that risk and make that plunge. So I joined Dine in 2011, first finance hire. The company was about 30 people at the time mostly engineering talent and a few go-to-market folks. And long story short, over a five-year period, we grew that company when I joined at about 5 million of AR to 100 million of AR. I became the VP of Finance and Corporate Development. We raised 100 million of outside capital, uh, but we're bootstrapped to 30 million of AR. And that can feed into some more of the conversation later here today. But we did 11 acquisitions during that run. We grew to 450 people globally. We opened offices in five different countries and we sold the company to Oracle at the end of 2016. Stayed on at Oracle for about three years, working as part of the cloud infrastructure group there. I've managed a team of about 40 people focused on market and product strategy, competitive intelligence, strategic partnerships, and M&A strategy. So had this unique lens and unique position where we sat between the Oracle corporate development team and the product teams with cloud infrastructure, and we would handle all of the inbound deal flow that would come into Oracle. And as you can imagine, there's quite a bit. So we would go seek out product sponsors, build deal rationales, present to leadership, and we get a few deals done there. And as you can imagine, Oracle has a lot of great rigor and process around deal evaluation. And we use a lot of that today. So in 2019, when we launched York IE after the Oracle run, we all knew we wanted to work together, which was first and foremost, we had been through quite a journey and being able to commit to each other for the long haul. And build what we call our forever company was really at the forefront of what we're doing here. So today I'm the chief investment officer and managing partner at York IE. I have a great team behind me and we really feel like we're building something that will create great enterprise value into the future. 
great background and great story and congratulations on everything to date. Given that you have this advisory arm, but also are active investors, what sort of advice are you giving to the companies that you're working with, both on the portfolio side and on the advisory side? And then how, as investors, are you guys navigating this current market? Absolutely. Thank you. So our core piece of advice for founders and startups at the earliest stage is obviously about that early customer traction, early customer engagement of the product. There's a lot of pieces that go into that. That's a broad answer, but understanding the ideal customer profile, understanding the repeatable use case, understanding what value customers see from your offering. We like to say too that a lot of technical founders typically are heads down and somewhat singular focused on problem and solution. And we encourage a more sort of market in approach of, hey, what's going on in the market around you? What are the key areas of value? How do you think about the ecosystem landscape, competitive landscape around you? And how do you differentiate? What's that moat that you can build and that unique offering that you can bring to the market? Again, sometimes with technical founders, it's hard to put that customer and go-to-market lens on it. So a lot of times we're working with those early entrepreneurs and how to think through that problem. And then again, business model, right? How are you actually going to price the product, drive revenue, build a go-to-market engine, build a brand that makes you stand out as a startup. And then as investors, have you guys been more cautious to deploy capital or how have you guys been handling that on the investment side? Great question. I think what we've seen, again, we've made about 38 investments over the last three years. And so we have a portfolio at various stages. For some portfolio companies, obviously you can read the paper, a lot of sort of series B and beyond rounds have become quite difficult to achieve. seems like some of those investors are either rethinking strategy or they've said we're on pause until next year. But for us in the new deal funnel, we actually think valuations have come down a fair bit at the earliest mm -hmm. stages. That goes without question, but it's playing into our hand well. I think we're now, um, what we've always preached, again, back to this dime being bootstrapped until 30 million, right? We really focus on pragmatic and thoughtful company building, not just growth at all costs. So there needs to be inherent efficiency in your business model. And now folks are really paying attention to that more. And I think, again, with our services model, we can really help out, keep costs controlled, layer on some services, plug some holes and gaps that are super helpful and efficient ways to get to those milestones that companies now need to achieve in order to raise up rounds and continue to build shareholder value. Um, so from a deployment sequencing, we've probably never seen more top of funnel and we're just as active writing checks now as we ever have been. And I foresee it remaining that, that sort of consistency into the short to midterm here. And I think it's an exciting time for entrepreneurs and founders. And you're also now seeing all of the layoffs at the big tech companies. I'm hopeful that there's a lot of new entrepreneurs that emerge out of these interesting times. Joe, you talked about Dyne and Dyne was bootstrapped and then you raised capital once you got to a certain scale. I have a buddy from business school who thinks that should be how you build a company. And obviously not everybody can do that. I'm curious, and some firms specialize in looking for those companies, right? Because it takes, it's a different kind of entrepreneur. They want more control of the process early on. Obviously they keep more of the company. How do you think about that as a strategy, given your experience? Certainly. And you know, the best way to relate to founders and entrepreneurs when we're talking about that, we're essentially doing the same thing with our tech enabled services business off to the side, right? So we can relate 
to these founders and entrepreneurs as they think through that strategy. Our number one saying has always been the best way to fund your companies with customers, with revenue. And we fundamentally believe that. Now, there comes a point in time where you've achieved certain product market fit signals or, again, repeatable use cases where it makes a ton of sense to pour fuel on the fire, raise some outside capital, really invest for growth and go for it. That's a That needs to be a very precise sort of exercise and study to make sure that you're ready for that. Because as soon as you take outside capital, and I don't care if you're pre-revenue at 5 million of revenue or 30 million of revenue, like we were at Dime, the world quickly changes. There's other stakeholders, there's other expectations, there's unique governance. So you just need to be aware of what happens when you raise outside capital. And sometimes it's the greatest accelerator and best thing you can do. And other times that may not be the outcome. You're closest to Boston. Boston was obviously a hot place for startups a while back. And then there was talk of resurgence with a lot of entrepreneurs recycling and GE moving there. They have built a strong venture ecosystem around biotech in particular with Moderna there and other very successful companies. What's your sense of that venture ecosystem? It continues to boom. I think obviously you have many universities and strong colleges and institutions around that market as well. I would say too, over the last year or so, we're seeing that kind of greater Boston expansion though as well. Stuff happening outside of the city and unique in different pockets. Even Manchester, New Hampshire here has a healthy ecosystem. Dine, as I continue to mention, we were acquired by Oracle, but right across the street from us was PillPack. It was acquired by Amazon, but all that talent in the area. We had New Forma who was acquired. We have there was a lot of tech companies over the last decade or so that somewhat fly under the radar, but had successful outcomes. And some of those founders and team members have stayed local. But go up to Portland, Maine. I don't know if you've checked in on that ecosystem recently, but a tremendous amount of resource up there. They have the Rue Institute that's building this tremendous engineering school. There's a lot of capital coming from state sources as well. And again, a supporting ecosystem of folks who are committed to that area. So I continue to remain completely bullish on the area, the greater New England region, even my hometown. I'm seeing folks from West Coast companies land here and they're coming for schools and quality of life and perhaps cost of living. So I think the talent pool continues to grow outside of just your major metropolitan areas. But at the same time, we're only 45 minutes from Boston, right? No different from San Francisco to the Valley type of conversation, right? We, yeah. we bring that up. We remain bullish and focused and New Hampshire is obviously near and dear to our heart. And we want to help support this ecosystem and hope more companies choose to start here. Is there a company that you'd want to highlight that's part of the investment portfolio and maybe one on the advisory side? I don't want to offend anyone. Yeah, no. Listen, we have a tremendous portfolio. We have a great group of founders and entrepreneurs. One company worth highlighting, one of our earlier investments, is this company called Vetro Fiber Map out of Portland, Maine. So they do GIS mapping for fiber networks. Again, Portland team grew out of a services business of subject matter experts and built a SaaS platform to help folks manage their fiber networks, both from a you know build, but also operating a perspective. So we funded them early on. They went on to raise capital from Resolve Growth and continue to grow and scale the business in the Portland area. Another one worth mentioning, which will be known to most Boston folks, is a company called Our Work. A tremendous founder there, Rakim, who his founding story is just 
one that as soon as we met Rakeem, you knew that was the type of founder and entrepreneur you wanted to back. He had some family struggles and managed to help out his family and then go back to school, put himself through Harvard and start this business. And he's just an exceptional founder with tremendous, uh, a tremendous mission-driven purpose for why he built our work. And it's really to help the hourly worker have a more flexible schedule. It's also for employee retention and engagement for hourly workers. He's rapid growth, exciting opportunity lies ahead for Rakeem, and we're just happy to be a part of that investment. On the advisory side, we have a long list of clients. We've helped, I'm trying to think of someone unique, we've helped with Link Squares, which is Boston-based, which is gone on to raise a good amount of capital at a great valuation. That's an AI-powered contract management legal tech tool. We worked with the founder there and the CRO quite extensively, as well as other members of the management team with some executive advisory, some help fundraising, some advice, some intros. And then Kyle, the CRO there, have dug in deep as well and spent a lot of time together talking through go-to-market strategy. They've got a tremendous growth story, a tremendous scaling story, and one to keep an eye on. It goes to show too, though, that, you know, our advisory team can scale up, scale down, stage, sort of stage agnostic. Link Squares is a highly valuable company, not a startup anymore, right? But we've been able to scale with them over the last couple of years or so here. And I'm just excited about that team and where they go in the future. Are the advisory services done on a retainer basis? Yes. Yep. Okay. Typically a retainer basis, recurring revenue. We're trying to build a predictable revenue stream attached to that as well. Right. And again, I mentioned earlier, but we have those four key modules with key deliverables within each. And that's how kind of the team is set up. Cause I know that you mentioned, I think it was like 75 people. Yes. And the majority or not majority, but about half those folks are, are in India, right? That's our development offering that we have. And we've got okay. tremendous leadership here that manages that and a tremendous leader over there who has built that team and continues to scale that practice. And we're incredibly lucky to have trusted folks like, like Calrav who's over there running that team. And so talking about the model a little bit more, what was the intention behind building it the way that you did? Our, our key was, hey, is there a way to bring active capital to the earliest stages of a startup's journey? And sometimes you don't see that. And the reasons are, typically, there are small funds investing at this stage. And so the small fund has a small team. Or it's a large fund, right, that's writing a passive check and perhaps maybe just interested in having an engagement with the company in hopes of investing into future rounds. And while both of those models are totally okay, we said, hey, can we flip that on its head a little bit? Let's figure out a model where we can be super active capital at the earliest stages, make it work for everyone, make it align incentives, right, between the founder and entrepreneur, our team, our advisory team, and our investment partners, right? And we feel like we've got this vertical approach that makes a lot of sense in terms of bringing smart money to the earlier stages of tech investing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Thanks for providing a little bit more detail on that. We appreciate it. So now we're going to switch over into our four standard question segment. We're looking forward to hearing your answers. If there was one thing that you would change about the venture capital industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? Certainly. Great question. I think, you know, the way in which we think about the venture industry, right? I would like to see more of the industry align incentives to remember that 
If entrepreneurs win, we can all win. And that's not just meaning one out of 10 entrepreneurs should be that winner, right? I think that speaks to our model. It speaks to pragmatic capital raising. It speaks to controlling your own destiny, understanding your cap table. But rather than this, what has traditionally been rule of power law, right? We have a portfolio in which we want to see 10 out of 10 winners. And I'm okay with some that we know there are going to be some that are 1x returns. We hope for the outlier and the model. We know that's how the economics traditionally work, but I want to see each founder, entrepreneur, and their teams be successful. And at the end of the day, those teams are what are enabling the success stories. And so they need to be rewarded just as much as any investor. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? Money wasn't a concern. This might also require not having young kids in a family perhaps, but my passion is skiing. And I was a ski racer growing up. And uh, I would be a ski racing coach, obviously. I totally uh, thought you were going to go with a little league coach, by the way. <laughs> Maybe, but little league's intense. I've yeah. seen some of those parents out there. No, ski racing is just a tremendous sport. I love the individuality of it, the focus that's required to, to be on the mountain and sometimes interesting climate conditions and staring down the hill that you're willing to just lay it all out on the line for. It's a very unique sport. It requires a tremendous amount of focus, a tremendous amount of training. And I just love the whole aspect of being outside in the winter, especially since I live in New Hampshire. You need yeah, that makes sense. Sounds natural, even so far as skiing is a great family sport, right? It's the one place where you can sit on the lift with your kids and there's no devices and you can have conversations. But I would love to be a ski racing coach. If money were no object. Or no moguls. Nope. Downhill racing, alpine. Okay. All right. How many knee injuries have you had? I'm, I know we're on audio today, so you can't tell. I'm relatively short, so low center of gravity. So not too many knee injuries for me. Perhaps if I was taller, that would have been the case. But no, knock on wood, I was able to survive without any major knee in injuries. Been other injuries, upper body, but no. <laughs> All right. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? This was an interesting question, and I actually pondered over this for a bit. Obviously, there's plenty of public figures and folks to look up to in our industry, athletes, et cetera. But I think at core, it always comes back to kind of family and members and friends and people that are close to you and in your trusted network. And in my instance, it's actually my cousin, Chris. Chris is my age. He was diagnosed at age 12 with a glioblastoma brain tumor, given six months to live. Just an unbelievable tragedy that came over our family at the time. And fast forward, but Chris is alive and well today. He's a privacy and HIPAA attorney for a large healthcare company, but we were alongside of him through three major brain surgeries, all these interesting procedures that were experimental at the time. And we would travel down to Boston with him on an ongoing basis. And You've never seen a 12-year-old or anyone at that age just be so positive about the experience and just somewhat thankful, as weird as that sounds, but thankful for that his family was by his side and that it continued to be a person of faith, which I thought was just exceptional and was certainly just an inspiration to watch. And he went on to become one of the key spokespeople for the Jimmy Fund and then went to college, put himself through law school and has a tremendous career today. And it's just an inspiration. And again, something I was was able to watch up close and personal and hard for me to ever think of many things in my life that have impacted me as much. Yeah, I know. What a remarkable person and a really inspiring story. 
Number four, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Family first. I think that obviously the world has changed a lot over the years, but the family unit is just such a strong foundation. And I'll even expand family a bit to even my partners here. And we all have three little kids. They're all the same ages. We're raising our families together. And we fully, as I said, we're building our forever company and we're doing that together. And we're committed to that. And we're committed to our hometown and where we come from and our extended families that all live locally as well. And I think if you don't have family with happiness and understanding, you're going to have all of these distractions and then you can't live up to your best expectations and ambitions. Those key relationships really come ahead of anything else. And you have to make sure that those remain strong and that's your foundation and you can build upon that. I continually go back to that. I actually worked with someone in New York who also believed that. He happened to be the CEO of a couple of major business units at Bloomberg and had major, major roles throughout his career. And that was his saying as well. And I believe that fundamentally continue to try to strive and live by that. Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciated your time and learning more about your work. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to future discussions. Thanks. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. Thank you.